Acts chapter 22. In chapter 21, we left off with Paul beginning his public address to the Jews that just tried to kill him. And it says in verse 1, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. So his first words set the foundation of his speech upon the family of Israel. You men are my brothers and older men are my fathers. Verse 2, And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, Verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So, recalling what James had said to Paul earlier in the week about showing the Jews that Paul still lived in accordance with the Jewish law and he was not an enemy of the Jews, Paul begins his speech in the Jewish language Hebrew. So in their minds, they say, okay, so he calls us brothers and fathers. He's speaking in our language. Okay, maybe we should listen to him. He seems to be pretty Jewish to us. Okay, we'll listen. And this allows Paul to reinforce his argument that he is one of them. I am a Jew like all of you. I understand our law because my teacher, you all know. Gamaliel was a very popular rabbi who we see in Acts chapter 5. This was Paul's mentor who poured into Paul's life those things which made him zealous as a Pharisee. I have zeal for God just like you guys do. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Again, the way refers to what we would call the followers of Jesus. So Paul is saying, look, the thing that I am hated for is the very thing that I hated, and I did something about it. I persecuted them harshly. Remember in chapter 7, Paul is overseeing the murder of Stephen, and that would go on to haunt him. Verse 5, as the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Now notice in verse 5, the present tense in the verse, can bear me witness. Many of these people were still alive that Paul got the letters from. They're alive and kicking, and they could vouch for Paul's previous zeal. They're likely at the council meeting we see later in the chapter where Paul is yarded off to court by the Roman Tribune and seated in front of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish version of the Supreme Court, and there's likely members present who know Saul of Tarsus, the former Pharisee gone rogue. So they're still around, or at least some of them. For six, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. So now he's going to begin with his testimony. Verse seven, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 8. And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. It's interesting that Jesus identifies himself as the one Paul is persecuting, not the leader of my followers who you are persecuting. Rather, you're all over me, Paul, and you're persecuting my children. Now it's personal between you and I. I think that's cool that Jesus is standing in the gap for his children, and he does. He's our shield. Verse 9. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Verse 10, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Paul now has his commission from God. He just doesn't have his orders yet. He knows, I've got a new mission. Verse 11, And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, in other words, he was blinded, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. So Paul's saying, okay, look, I was escorted into the city. And one of our own, who is well respected and devout in his Jewish faith, met me. 
and his name was Ananias. Verse 13, speaking of Ananias, he came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that very hour I received my sight and saw him. Brother, that's interesting. The man who was murdering and imprisoning believers is now called brother by a devout Jewish man who believes in Jesus. Ananias was probably on the hit list in Damascus. But this is what redemption is all about, getting a new life and a new family, including people you thought to be your enemies. And they're now your brothers and sisters. It's awesome. I was at a Spanish pastor's conference years ago. I was the only gringo in the house. And when word got around, because most of them were curious who this white dude is and why he's here, and that word was that I was a pastor and I was also a cop at the same time, it spread like wildfire. There's probably a hundred and something people there. And this one brother I spoke to was, was very honest. He had done time in his life before Jesus and had no love for cops. And he apologized to me and said, sorry, man, but I've got issues with cops. And he wasn't a pastor. He's a leader in his church, but he had some real issues with cops. And I laughed. I said, hey, it's cool, hermano. Don't worry about it. And we went our way, understanding each other for the rest of the conference. And while we still had some interaction, we kept a distance between us. And then the next year, I went back to that conference again. They held the next year's conference. And upon entering the building, I saw that guy again. I remembered his name. And I walked up to him and I called him by his name. And I said, hola. And he turned around and he brightened up and gave me a big hug. And we were like best friends the rest of the conference. And it took a while for God to break down the walls in his heart. I didn't have an issue with him, but he did. And God makes friends out of enemies. And maybe he's doing that in your life right now. Be open to loving people you previously hated. It's a good thing. Verse 14. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. So one of the criteria of being an apostle of Jesus, having apostolic authority, meaning among other things, that they have the authority to write scripture, was to have known Jesus and be chosen by him. And Ananias here reveals qualifications. God appointed or chose you, Paul, to see the righteous one and to hear him. So now Paul was qualified to be an apostle. And he's qualified to write scripture. That's why so many of the letters in the New Testament were written by Paul. He had the authority by God because he was a true apostle. Verse 15, for you will be a witness for him, Jesus, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So Paul's calling was to tell everyone what he had seen and heard. So here Paul is doing that. He's speaking to the mob that tried to kill him. Paul is simply being faithful to what God had called him to do. Look, I'm being faithful to him. I'm being a witness for him. I'm telling everyone, that's you what I've seen and heard. He didn't have a lot of convincing strategies. Like, look, this is what happened, okay? Your personal testimony is very important in your life. Some of you have a great testimony. Some of you have yet to have a testimony. Trust in the Lord and you'll have one. God will do great things. You can just share that. You don't have to worry about how smart you are or how many Bible verses you know. Just tell your testimony, man. That's what moves people's hearts. Verse 16, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. Now, the blood of Jesus is the only thing in Scripture that washes away our sin, that does away with it. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. First John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So, baptism, water baptism, in the way that we know it, going down underwater and coming back up, does not cleanse anybody of sin. Water baptism simply makes a profession that I was dead in trespasses and sin. I was buried and I was resurrected in newness of life through Jesus. In Romans 6, 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So 
That's what water baptism is. It doesn't wash away your sins, only demonstrates what has already happened to a converted soul. So Ananias, understanding this, essentially is saying, Paul, profess your faith in Christ. You already met him. You know he's chosen you. So believe and proclaim that faith by water baptism. And Paul probably was familiar with Christian water baptism as well. But at this point, Paul may have not repented of his sin or committed his life to Jesus. So baptism may not been appropriate prior to this. So Ananias is saying, what are you waiting for? Go do it. And he did. Verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. Verse 18. And saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So Paul is telling the brothers in Jerusalem that just tried to kill him that Jesus had previously warned him that his brothers would not receive his testimony. Verse 19, and I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Verse 20, and when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So Paul lays it out. He says, look, I had the same attitude about Jesus as you did. I persecuted the Christians relentlessly, even to the point of endorsing the murder of Stephen. Then Jesus got a hold of me and showed me who he really was. So I follow him now. Why wouldn't they believe me, Lord? Come on, I've got credibility, I've got power, I've got experience in this. Paul's kind of like, yeah, come on. I can convince them. Verse 21, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Kaboom. Verse 22, up to this word, Gentiles, they listened to him. Then they raised their voice and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. See, All was good about the story of Jesus. They were listening until the Gentiles were mentioned. This was one of the main problems that the Jews had with Paul. He considered non-Jews or Gentiles worthy of salvation. He was bringing them in, bringing them to Jerusalem, all this stuff. And the Jews hated the Gentiles. So when he said Gentiles, they lost it. And Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 16, he says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So Paul implied that. Look, the Gentiles, look guys, they're, they're going to be part of the family of God. Ah! And they went nuts. But Jesus is referring to the church made up of Jews and Gentiles. And at the time that he said this, the Gentiles were still outside the fold, and he wanted to bring them in. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. I'm talking about giving up Jesus at the cross. A light for the nations. And that word nations is also translated Gentiles. And there's many other verses like this in the Old Testament where Jesus is being referred to and the Gentiles coming to faith in the Lord. And Paul likely used this verse and many others when he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews, proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, because remember, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. But it's all over the Old Testament, so it's easier for him to say, look, that's what the verse means. Verse 23, And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air like savages, the crowd went crazy, making a huge scene. Verse 24, And the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he would be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. The Romans don't know what to do with this guy, so they opt to do what they normally do, beat him severely and then question him. Verse 25, But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, the centurion was the leader of his group, Paul said, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? So Paul throws up the citizen card before he was flogged, unlike he did in Acts 16. He's like, I'm not going through this again. Ah, Roman citizen here, guys. Yeah, um, better think about what you're doing. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, 
He went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? Well, it's obvious. I'm going to flog this guy. I'm going to get some answers out of him. This man's a Roman citizen. So imagine you're hearing a car drive down the street at a high rate of speed and then slamming on the brakes and that screeching sound of a long skid comes to a stop. That's what happened here. Pucker factor shot through the roof. Verse 27. So the tribune came in and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. So the Roman boss, undoubtedly surprised by this, he confronts Paul and says, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He probably had the most skeptical look on his face because Paul evidently didn't appear to the Roman tribune to look like a Roman citizen. And if Paul was lying and the tribune caught him in the lie, then the tribune could fix the problem for everyone. He would simply behead Paul for falsely claiming to be a Roman, take his head outside, throw it to the mob and say, problem solved then shut the door and go have coffee. And now he has to determine, is this guy being straight up? Verse 28, the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So the path to citizenship for the tribune, who obviously wasn't a citizen all his life, was difficult and expensive. And it was. To become a Roman citizen when you weren't was a big deal. It was very expensive. Yeah, you just didn't walk in and apply for citizenship. But Paul's citizenship came from birth, so apparently Paul's parents were Roman citizens. And now the tribune sees his problem is bigger than he thought. Verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. It's not lawful to bound a Roman citizen before they're condemned. So the examiners, they put their whips away quickly and they're like, ah, look at the time. I got to go. They're gone. The Tribune realizes he screwed up by unlawfully arresting a Roman citizen, but he kept Paul in custody overnight anyway, which was probably the right course of action. Otherwise, he would have a Roman citizen homicide to deal with, and he probably didn't want to deal with that. Verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he, Paul, was being accused by the Jews, he, the Tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So the tribune orders the chief priests and council because he had the authority. The council, the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish version of the Supreme Court, they were to gather together. And he puts Paul in the midst of them to get the real story. And Paul was just as much a problem for the Roman tribune as he was for the Jews and the Sanhedrin. The problems Paul caused were many because Paul was not slowing down. And he would soon be a problem for the Roman emperor who, unlike the Roman Tribune, would not follow their law, but his own evil heart, and he would murder Paul. So why all the fuss? Jews, Romans, priests, tribunes, emperors, why is it that Paul is such a problem? The answer lies, I believe, in Paul's conversion where Ananias is speaking to Jesus in Acts chapter 9, verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So why all the suffering? Well, I believe Paul suffered so much because Jesus chose a man who was faithful to his calling, and that calling was hard, but Paul was the right man. Paul was well-equipped for the work Jesus had prepared him to do, and part of that work was to know the will of God and the hope of eternal life, which Paul knew. In the kingdom of God, Paul will be rewarded for his faithfulness, and his faithfulness involves suffering and not whining about it. Paul knew this hope and knew that he would be rewarded for the things he did in faith as he wrote to the Romans, In Romans 14, 8, for if we live, 
we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So one of the reasons Paul knew it was his calling, he knew he had to suffer. He knew that was what God had him to do. Another reason Paul knew that doing the will of God, he would see the glory of God in ways that other people wouldn't, that did not do the will of God. Another reason was he knew the rewards were coming at the judgment seat. For believers, you're going to be judged on everything that you did in faith. This is not the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, where everyone's judged for salvation according to what they've done. You don't want to be there. That's what the cross was all about. Our judgment for salvation took place on the cross. This is a different judgment. This is where believers are going to be rewarded. And Paul knew he was accountable, and he knew how evil he actually was as a religious elite. So for Paul, suffering may have been a kind of redemption in and of itself for the persecution he inflicted on the innocent people of God. And his rewards in heaven will reflect his faithfulness. So now Paul is probably not too concerned about being treated the way he was. He's in glory with Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul compares the tent to our temporary mortal body and a building to our eternal body that's a permanent dwelling place. And he says in chapter 5 verse 1, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, not a house made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he's talking there about when we die, when our tent is destroyed, we go on to a permanent dwelling. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive that which is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we're going to receive rewards for those things that we have done. And the things that are evil, we're going to suffer loss for them. We're not going to be rewarded for them. And Paul knew this, and he's the one that wrote Romans and 2 Corinthians, so he's familiar with this judgment seat of Christ. And we need to be familiar with that too, because our lives are going to be evaluated. And all the good things that we do out of the goodness of our hearts don't count. What counts is the obedience we have given God. When he says, I want you to do this, we do that thing, no matter how difficult it was. And we'll use Paul as our example, because he did a lot of things that were very difficult, but he was faithful. And that faithfulness in the hard things brought about a relationship with God that was so real and so powerful. Wouldn't you like to be able to do the miraculous things that you see Paul do? And of course, in the flesh, we're like, yeah, I'd love to do that. But that's not the point. In the spirit, Paul was in tune with God. He used Paul because Paul was faithful. He knew Paul wouldn't fly off the handle and he would execute what it was that God wanted him to do in faith, in obedience. That's the key. That's where the rewards come. It comes from being faithful and not seeking our own will, but seeking his will. And when we seek God's will for our lives and we make it our aim to please him, that's when we'll be blessed. Thank you.